Morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Probably should have started with that. Uh, great to have you here. Um, as I was saying, this morning, early at 6 o'clock, I am running on caffeine fumes at the moment. Had I already mentioned that? Yeah, but you may not have heard it in the back. Running on caffeine. We looked at the message of the cross and the resurrection. And we saw out of John 19 and John 20 the miraculous nature of how Jesus Christ is indeed our Messiah. And as our Messiah, he is the overcoming God King. And nothing talks more about the overcoming nature of Jesus Christ than his resurrection from the grave. Yes, every other story we see in Scripture about him, from the feeding of the 5,000 to the healing to raising Lazarus and everything in between, sort of feels like it pales in comparison to his own self-resurrection, overcoming sin, death, and the trials that we face on our behalf. And we saw in that process this morning something out of Psalm 22 that talked about the nature of Christ in the crucifixion and in Job 19, the fact that Job had great confidence that he would see his Redeemer. Even if he died and this flesh turned to bones, he would see Jesus Christ. He had that confidence in his Redeemer. Well, this morning we're going to continue that story and much more of a reaction. If we know that the resurrection took place, if we see the truth of Scripture and we enlighten it with the facts of history and we believe that it took place, there should be a change in us. There should be something different about us if we truly believe that basic fact of Christian doctrine, of Christian history, of our sacred relationship with Christ. And in order to see that start to unpack, we're going to look at John chapter 20, starting in verse 11. And we've got a, a whole bunch of scripture we're going to read this morning. So if you're in John 20, well, actually, if you're not in John 20, John 20 would be a great place to start, because uh, we're going to start looking at verse 11 through 18. And we're going to see the first responses to the resurrection. Now, at this point, Sunday had already come, morning had already come, the sun had already started to rise, and people went to the tomb to prepare the burial of Jesus Christ. Uh, the previous three days earlier, on Friday afternoon, he died, but they weren't able to prepare the body properly because the Passover was coming, um, and so they weren't allowed to work on the Passover, so they buried him without preparing the body, wrapping it up and putting all the spices and embalming things that would have been normal. So they come there that Sunday morning, and they notice there's no one in the tomb. What in the world is going on? He should be here. We know where we placed him, and he's missing. So Mary Magdalene run back to the disciples, tell them, hey, something's wrong. He's not where he's supposed to be. Someone took his body. They run, and they notice the tomb is completely empty. The resurrection had already taken place, although they did not have a full understanding of what was going on. In fact, in that passage this morning, we saw that they didn't understand Scripture entirely. So they were confused, and I imagine they were a bit worried and nervous and even scared that someone took his body. What are they doing with it? Where have they gone? And so the story picks up in verse 11 of chapter 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb. If you've ever been to a funeral and you've been a close family member of the person who died or a friend, tears are 100% normal and natural when you are looking upon someone who has passed away. And you feel 
a deepness in your throat and in your gut. It's hard to get rid of that feeling, and if you think hard enough, I know you can feel that right now if you've lost someone close to you. It's gut-wrenching. It is painful, yet it doesn't hurt, but yet it hurts everywhere. You're filled with sorrow. You're filled with joyful memories, but you know that you've suffered a loss. Mary saw that, but it was compounded with the body's missing. There's one thing to see the person in the grave, in the tomb, in the casket, and have those memory and mourning and weeping and sorrows, but it's compounded. It's a greater sadness and sorrow and unhappiness when you want to grieve for the person, but they're not there. They're gone. They're missing. So she's outside while some of the disciples are inside, and she's just weeping. Natural, human, definitely shows a deep connection between her and Christ. She's in pain. In verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. It would have been common to have just a stone slab kind of cut outside of that entrance of that tomb where you'd lay the body. And there might be multiple little nooks and crannies in that cave where you'd lay a body. Well, his body was supposed to be in that one spot. It's gone. His clothes are still there. The, uh, the, the, the cloth, the linen that wrapped his head was in one spot, and the cloth that wrapped his body was in another spot, two separate cloths, two separate spots. And as she looks in there weeping and crying, she sees what she identifies as two angels, two messengers from God, because that's what angels are. That's what the word means. It means messenger, someone who declares something on behalf of God, a messenger. Well, she sees two angels, one at the front and one at the back. And I imagine in her mind, she's probably thinking for a brief moment, wow, I'm taking this death a little bit too seriously. I'm starting to see things. Or maybe I'm weeping so much. I, just every, But she notices it's not a mistake. It's not a vision. It's not hysteria. It's not deep pain. It's not something in her eyes. She notices clearly that there are two people in that tomb that should not be there that she identifies as angels. So there must have been something incredibly unique about them. They, they may be glowing in their whiteness, but there's this purity, there's this immediate identification. They're not like me. They're different. They're unique. They're special. And they said to her in verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Normal conversation. They're asking, why are you crying? Why is there such sadness in your heart? Why are you weeping? She goes, well, you know, one, he died, but now the further frustration that I have is that he's gone. I don't get to see him again. I don't get to prepare his body. I don't get to serve him one last time. They took his body. They answered this in verse 14. She turned around, and they saw, and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. So there's this instinct moment where she's weeping and crying, and she's looking into the tomb, 
There's no body, but there's two other people sitting there. Strange, they have a conversation with her, and then this impulse takes her, and she turns around, and she sees Jesus. She doesn't know who that is yet, but she recognizes there's, there's another guy, not one of the disciples, somehow looking different than what Jesus normally looked like because she would have been able to identify him. I know who that is, but she doesn't identify him. There's this cloud of mystery still both in her own heart and the fact that Jesus hasn't fully revealed what's completely going on. She doesn't have the privilege that we have to know the story of the resurrection from four different perspectives in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. She doesn't have the perspective of all the other people who've given eyewitness testimony that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. She didn't have the privilege of turning to Psalm 22 or on your phone in five seconds to find out, hey, what the crucifixion is going to be like. She didn't have the privilege to turn to Job chapter 19 and see what Job said about his Redeemer. She didn't have that privilege. So when she turned around, she was shocked. Oh, no, another guy. And the story continues. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Second time she's been asked, Why are you crying? Why are you crying? Guys, I have a hint for you. As much as we are to emulate Scripture, I don't know if that's the question you want to lead with when your wife is crying. Why are you crying? Almost that idea. Why are you weeping? What's the big deal? Why the tears? Why the crocodile tears? You know, but she's being confronted with reality versus how she's responding. She's responding to the situation with weeping and crying and, and heartfelt sorrow and frustration that the body's gone. But reality is, we know the body's not gone. We know there's no reason to cry. There's no reason to weep. There's no reason to be in anguish or pain or have your gut wrenching because he's alive. He's not dead. He's not like us. He is alive and alive forevermore. So he has this conversation about reality. Why are you weeping? Because there's no reason for her to. There's no reason for her to mourn. Just like there's no reason for us to mourn Jesus' death. There's no reason to mourn outside of that immediate sense of sorrow when we lose a loved one that we know walks with Christ. It is more joyful for them to be in the presence of God than with us, even though it hurts us, I know. But reality is, they're not truly, really, really dead. They're just in a phase waiting for their resurrection, just like Christ waited for three days. So why are you weeping? Jesus immediately asked the question as well, whom are you seeking? Now, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, so I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, or in Hebrew, rabbi. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. 
but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. I love Jesus' initial word to Mary. All, she, all he said was Mary. Mary. She had probably heard Jesus say Mary many times to her throughout the years that they were together in ministry, in her home, and she probably accompanied him to many of the events and miracles and saw him. And that call, Mary, was enough to awaken her from the sadness, the weeping, the mourning, the loss, enough to awaken her from something happened to his body to immediately recognizing that voice, Mary. Immediately recognizing it. I've become lazy in recognizing people's voices because of caller ID. Caller ID pulls up and I go, ooh, I'm guessing this is so, who's, who's calling me? And I no longer have to really guess a lot about the voice connecting with the name because I got the name right in front of me. Now, that only works if I have you in my contacts because otherwise it doesn't show up. But if I ever answer the phone and say, hey, Bill, how you doing? You're like, oh, wow, how did he know it was Bill? Well, it's, you know, it's caller ID. Everybody should know that by now. But poor Mary didn't have that advantage. She just remembered what Jesus' voice was like when he would call her, Mary. No one else could mimic that voice. No one else could know how that word was said, but in her ears, she heard it beautifully and perfectly. The Lord being personal and direct, Mary. And then she loses it. Teacher, rabbi. Then he says something uniquely strange for a moment. He says, don't cling to me. This isn't the time for us to, to kind of hug this out. For I've not yet ascended to my father. I still have work to do. But go to my brothers and say to them some of the most beautiful, comforting words you ever hear from Jesus. He says, I am ascending to my father. Who's God's father? Well, be the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, and his relationship to God the Father is God the Son. So we know who his father is, but then he says this, remarkable, I'm descend, ascending to my father and your father. That, that family bond that Christ immediately acknowledges, do you know what relationship we have? We're brothers and sisters. We are in the same family. You've been adopted into my heavenly family. I have brought you in. My work, my righteousness, my perfection, my sacrifice has brought you into a relationship that God the Father is now your Father. And he's talked about this from the very beginning when he introduced the disciples to how to pray. Pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He is reinforcing the personal relationship that he has accomplished on our behalf. And he not only says, our father, that beautiful relationship, that family bond, that, that name that we bear, but he says, I'm ascending to my father 
and your Father, to my God and your God. See, the relationship that Jesus Christ has established for us through the cross, through the sacrifice, through the spilling of his blood, through his death, through his resurrection, is not just simply so that we have someone we can call to, cry to, and say, hey, you know what, I'm struggling with this, kind of give me answers, direction in life. You're kind of like my really good father that kind of sees everything and knows everything. You're really wise. You got some power. Um, I really love this relationship because you kind of make life a lot easier for me. You're my father. He says on top of that, He's your God. Jesus does not want you to forget the real relationship you have with him. It's not just a a quick buddy connection. Hey, we're okay. But this relationship that God has established through Christ is with himself as God. That means he runs the show That means he has power. That means he has wisdom, ability, and might, and a plan. He's our God. And immediately that relationship becomes much bigger than just a a friendship reestablished. But it's a relationship of creation established. I am the creature. He is our creator. And now I can fully walk in that relationship between God and ourselves. I can really strive in holiness. I can really strive with righteousness. I can really have an understanding of what it means that he is eternal and almighty and amazing and beautiful. And I can acknowledge that he is the creator of the heavens and earth and that there is not a single inch of this universe where he does not say, mine, and I am safely in his his palm every second. All of that is understood when Jesus says, I'm going to my Father and yours, to my God and yours. There is a beauty there, a fullness there, an absoluteness there. And Mary's first response is go tell the disciples. Go back to wherever they were staying in Jerusalem and tell everyone who is standing there, I got some news for you. I have seen the Lord. And then she conveyed everything else that he had said. Well, the disciples are quickly also encountering the risen Lord in the next section, verse 19 through verse 23. On the evening of that day, so that would have been Sunday night, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Why would they be afraid of the Jews at this point? body's missing and the body went missing and I don't know where it is but I do know what happened to the body before it went missing brought up on trial unfairly accused of blasphemy and then mocked and ridiculed before Pilate then beaten and stripped and walked and paraded through the streets of Jerusalem where everyone was yelling Crucify him, crucify him, crucifying, laughing at him, spitting at him, hitting him, mocking him, surrounding him like a wild pack of dogs, attacking on every side, and he was alone. So you better believe they were scared that it would happen to them next if they kept 
meeting and talking about this Jesus because after they cut off the head, the body's going to scatter. And they were rightfully afraid in human terms of what they would do to them next. Peter already had tried to distance himself, denied Jesus three times. Of course, he was repentant of it, and God restored him. But everyone else ran their separate ways. Only John was at the cross. And then I don't think he was wearing a big old T-shirt with a banner saying, John 3.16, you know, Jesus way or no way. I mean, I don't think he was advertising the fact that he loved Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He was probably trying to keep a low profile. Of course they were afraid. So they locked themselves behind a door with that wonderful question that sometimes we face. What now? What do I do now? What do I do now? But Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. I think that's a little bit of an understatement. Doors locked. No one can get in, and all of a sudden, Jesus is standing in their midst. And of course, the first word he's going to say is, it's okay. Peace. Calm down. Relax. It's okay. Peace be with you. And it's a peace not just of, hey, we're, I, I want to calm your fears, but it's the first statement of Jesus after the resurrection to his group of disciples, setting the tone for their ministry. It is a ministry of peace. It is a ministry of reconciliation. It is a ministry in which establishes the truth. I am separated from God. And it's my sin that separates me from God. And it actually puts me at war with God. My sin stands as a contradiction to God's holiness and his beauty and his perfection and I stand in opposition to him. Scripture says we're at war with God. In fact, it says we are enemies of God. If Jesus did not intervene, we would still have that relationship with God where I am at war with him. And how well do you think I'm going to do at war against God? As big as I think my head is, as amazing as I think my thinking and my abilities are, and as amazing as I think I am, I am not going to do well against God. You're not going to do well against God either on your own. On your own, you are at war with him, and I'm telling you, he just doesn't have nukes. He controls Space, time, and matter. He created it. He holds your very breath in his hand. And if he decided no more breath, you would not breathe again. If he decided no more sight, you would never see. If he decided no more hearing, you would never hear. If he decided no more movement, your body would stop. And it doesn't take him effort to do that. He doesn't get tired. He could do that to all 8 million people and still get up in the morning refreshed. He doesn't tire. We are at war with someone who is able to destroy us. 
But yet Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace is established. That war that you once had with God is now gone. And it's not that you are now neutral toward each other, but now Jesus has made us friends and family with God. Our Father, our God. Peace be with you. And isn't that, in part, really the message of the church to the world? That through Christ, through the gospel and the good news that Jesus Christ came, died, buried, and was rose again, the good news is you can have peace with God. You can have an ending to the hostility. You no longer are enemies, but you can be family. That's the heart of the gospel, the message of the church, the message of Christ. Peace is available. And it's a peace that you can't fully understand, but it's a peace that will cost you nothing. It costs you nothing to have this kind of peace. It costs you nothing to have this relationship with God. It costs you nothing to have God as your Father and to have God as your God. God does not require anything of you. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to overcome past troubles and tribulations. You don't have to overcome the fear of the future. All of that is taken care of and given to us freely. Jesus announces, peace be with you. And when he said that, verse 20, he showed them his hands and side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He showed them. It's the same guy that you saw a few days ago. Yes, with some new scars. But the scars are healed. The scars don't affect me, and the scars shouldn't affect you. I went through this pain and this sorrow on your behalf, so those scars would not be yours, but they'd be mine. And they were happy and glad to see him. And then Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Again, peace is a major theme for Jesus because he overcame sin, death, and the devil so that peace might be established. So he wants to know peace is here. Peace is here. Peace can be yours. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So what was Jesus' first command? His very first instruction, his very first duty he's placing upon his disciples when peace has been established. What is their responsibility? What are they supposed to do now? Go and tell others that peace can be yours. Go and tell others what the Lord has done. Go and tell others about the miraculous nature of Jesus Christ. Go and tell others that God can be your God and the Father can be your Father. Go and tell them no weeping anymore. Go and tell them friendship and family relationship has been established between us and the creator of all heaven and earth. Go and tell them life can be theirs. Go and tell them the cost of this relationship is zero on your behalf. But go and tell them that the cost 
was actually the life of an innocent man who shed his blood willingly so that ours would not have to be shed. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. The beautiful thing about going in the name of Jesus as one of his disciples is that it's not dependent upon my ability. It's not dependent upon my strength or my willingness. It's not dependent upon my persuasiveness or my charismatic nature. It's not dependent upon me at all. Jesus gives me the power to do it through the Holy Spirit, and it's only through him that peace can be established. It's not because Paul is great at being a missionary or an evangelist that church has started. It's because Jesus is great as an evangelist, establishing peace in our hearts. Because Jesus changes the dead into life. The heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That's why Job was so confident. Even though I taste death, I know my Redeemer lives. That's why every disciple from this point forward realized that I am going to have to give my life for the words that I'm speaking. That I will sacrifice the worldly goods of this world that I might have that treasure of peace of Christ. And he calls us to do the same thing. Yeah, it's scary to tell people about Jesus. You might think, oh, Tim, it's easy for you. You're a pastor. You went to college and seminary. You, you stand up in, people, in front of people all day. And how can you have trouble? How can you be scared of this calling to evangelize? I don't know of anyone who isn't scared. Because being rejected hurts. Being laughed at hurts. Being ridiculed hurts. And I imagine having thro stones thrown at you hurt. I imagine being dropped off a building hurts. I imagine having your head cut off hurts. I imagine all the things that they did to the disciples really, really physically hurt. So there is a fear of getting hurt. But that fear is overcome when you realize that you walk and talk in the power of the Holy Spirit, that it's not dependent upon you and you alone, but the strength to tell others about peace with God comes from God himself. I cannot imagine an easier task than for God to say, I need you to do this, Oh, and I'm going to give you the power, ability, wisdom, and might to do it. What's stopping us from telling the world about Jesus? So you lose a Facebook friend, big deal. So you get banned from Twitter, big deal. So you get laughed at at school, big deal. So you get passed over for a promotion at work, big deal. Small things compared to the ministry that we have of peace and reconciliation. In Psalm 22, after David had written those things about predicting the future of what Christ would go through, the ending of that psalm is absolutely amazing. And this is where we're going to end this morning. So the very first part of that psalm 
He's talking about um, his clothes being uh, divided, talking about being pierced, talking about dying, talking about you know, being forsaken by God. And at the end of this, after the resurrection, we read some of these words in Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all of you, the offspring of God. From you comes my praise in the greatest congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May our hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For kingship belongs to Jehovah, and he rules over the nations. As sad as a crucifixion can be, there is rejoicing in the end because Christ has risen from the dead and we now have the ministry of praising God before the nations through letting them know that peace can be theirs. This is a world right now that doesn't look like it has much peace. It doesn't look like it has much joy or much hope. It doesn't look like there's forgiveness and patience. It definitely doesn't look like there's mercy and compassion. They are living and fighting as enemies, not only of each other, but before God. But you have the privileged opportunity to let people know that that war can be stopped. And just as Jesus said, it is finished. So we can declare to the world, sin can be finished. Death can be finished. Division can be finished. Anger can be finished. Lust can be finished. Division can be finished. Reconciliation and peace can be yours. So the question really becomes, are you willing to tell others about the peace of God through Jesus Christ? Are you willing to do that? And then given the opportunity, will you actually do it? And you don't stand alone. You don't stand in your own might or your own power or your own words. God is with you every step of the way. His spirit indwells you to empower you and to give you the right words to speak. Are you willing to follow him? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, you are amazing, you are full of life, and we rejoice and praise throughout all the heavens and earth of your glory and your majesty. Thank you, Father, for allowing us into your family. Thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, and thank you for the peace you have given us, not just in our own hearts and soul, but before you and with you. Give us confidence, Father, to preach your word and to speak your name to a world that is without peace, joy, or hope. In your son's name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand.